Well, let me encourage you, um, over the next two, three, four days, five days, some people meet for Christmas, even up to New Year's, to really celebrate well. To really celebrate. Sometimes we feel bad about celebrating, and God's really big on celebrating. As a matter of fact, when you look at the Old Testament, you see that God was the party planner. He's the one that said, I want you guys to have festivals to celebrate. But what we have to do is we have to celebrate right. And that doesn't mean that we can find what we're supposed to celebrate at Yonkers or Macy's, as much as they would like you to believe that you will. And nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with giving gifts. We should be giving gifts to each other, but make sure as you celebrate, let me encourage you, celebrate for a reason and help people to know why you're celebrating. It's the theme of what we're going to be talking about this morning. So celebrate really, really well. I'm going to give you two verses before I pray with you, and these are ones that I've been wrestling through this week. You'll see why in just a few minutes, but let me share them with you at the front end here. The first one comes from Hebrews 1.3. It says, He is the radiance of His glory. Speaking of Jesus. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Here's the second one. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. Father, we've just really enjoyed watching these children this morning. And our hearts are, are lifted just by watching youthful exuberance. Would that we as adults and older students would be able to cut loose that way without any hesitation or reservation. And Father, that, that wells up from joy and a lack of encumbrances. And you said you've taken all the weight. You've taken the encumbrances off from us. Father, I ask that right now as a result of what we're about to hear and what we're about to read, that you would lift our spirits. Give us a reason, Father, deep within us to celebrate so that we celebrate well. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we ask that you would speak through the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us insight into things that we would not see on our own. Make your word come alive as you promised that it would. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So word on the street is that there was a pretty big event that happened in Old Mother England in the last year. A little, little bit of merrymaking took place. William and Kate, Prince William, his royal prince. As a matter of fact, the invitation card said, His Royal Highness, Prince William. So this is the invitation card that was sent out. I brought mine in so that you could see it. Wanted you to get a feel for what they looked like, you know, in case you didn't get invited. So this invitation card was sent out to the 1900 who's who's around the world. I didn't actually, I didn't get one, okay, just so you know. But never mind. Anyways, the very top, it says the Lord Chamberlain is commanded by the Queen to invite blank. So they sent out 1900 of these gold-encrusted invitations around the world to the who's who's, the kings, the ambassadors, secretaries of state, captains of industry, 
to have them present at this celebration when His Royal Highness Prince William would celebrate with Kate Middleton their marriage. So we understand that we weren't invited to that, right? So we know we didn't get one of those. As a matter of fact, even if you were one of the 1900 that got the invitation, the father of Prince William, Prince Charles, decided that he would refine it a little bit later. So after the wedding, later in the day at four in the afternoon, he threw a party for the 600 of the who's who of the 1900. Can you imagine if you got invited to the wedding as one of the 1900, but you didn't make the cut to get into the 600? So he had a party after the party. So the queen outdid her son, and the queen decided to throw a shindig at 8 o'clock in the evening, and she refined the list from 600 down to 300. So even the 600, when they thought they were part of the who's who, found out they weren't really on the A-list, because you had to be part of the 300 in crowd to get into that. So as I'm thinking about this event, I'm considering the contrast with the arrival of the real King of Kings. Because admittedly, the arrival of Jesus on planet Earth is an assault to our senses. It absolutely is. It seems entirely unacceptable. But at the same time, an unbelievable representation of His majesty and His power and is worthy of the person and the character of God. Here's the incongruity, the, the imbalance. He's royalty, but he's not born in a palace. He's born in a cave. In heaven, he dwells in a palace of gold. He sits on a royal throne, but here on planet Earth, we give him a feeding box for his crib. Hey, welcome to planet Earth. Here's some straw. It's a remarkable imbalance. And he's got a personal envoy of the Most High God with angels echoing the decree. And yet when he arrives, there's only farm animals inside the stall to greet him. And to cap it off, a teenage girl and a woodworker to parent him. Nothing like that happened for the King of England. So at the apex of history, God sends out his royal invitation. A royal invitation at the top moment in human history. Five climatic moments in human history. Do you know what the five apexes are in history? This will not be on a history test in your local public school, I guarantee you. The creation of man, the fall of man, the arrival of King Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, or the crucifixion and resurrection. Number five hasn't happened yet. It's the return of the king. Those are the five most climactic events. So this one, at the pinnacle of time, what Scripture calls the fullness or the consummation of the ages, God sends out a royal invitation. And who does he send it to? Well, it strikes me that God has a habit of inviting the most unlikely cast of characters to join him in his work. Matter of fact, let me think with you. Let's just do a 4G tour right through some of the characters of Scripture. Start with Adam, the very first man. God shows up on the scene in the garden to walk with him as has been his custom, and he finds Adam dressed in a pair of fig leaf shorts, holding a piece of fruit with the juice still running down his chin, saying, what? 
you gave me the woman. I mean, she deceived me. Not too pretty, is it? Or think of Abraham. Abraham, the one who lied about who his wife was just so he could save his own skin. Or his son Jacob, who's called a thief and a deceiver. The one who actually stole his brother's birthright. Or what about Jacob's sons? Eleven of them tried to kill their brother and they were unsuccessful in that. And so they sold him into slavery. You go down the list and you find King Saul. King Saul, he's the one who hired a witch. Hired a witch to tell him about the future. Or what about Moses? Moses is a murderer. How ironic that God gave him the Ten Commandments to write down, you shall not murder. Or what about his brother Aaron, who started his own golden calf building business? King David, he's an adulterer, a womanizer. He chases after other men's wives. His son, King Solomon, you can say self-indulgent with a capital I. Or what about, what about this one, Peter? <laughs> Just the mention of his name gives you hope, doesn't it? Because everything associated with him seems to be a screw-up while Jesus is with him on earth. Or what about Paul? Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. See, it's not very pretty when you really kind of roll things back and you look behind the curtain, you look behind the veil on humanity's actions, and it really isn't very attractive. We would like to appear like the A-listers. We would like to appear like Oz, the great and powerful. But really, when you look behind the curtain, there's just a weak old man back there. That's the reality of the, the who's who. So as a people, it strikes us as illogical and bizarre and inexplainable and absurd that the God of the universe would come here to pull us back to himself. Here's the illogical part of those four characteristics. The illogical thing is that a king would be born in a cave, let alone God. Here's the bizarre part, why he came. I get it. I totally understand it. We are sinners in need of a savior. You only have to open up the newspaper headlines to read every day what we are capable of. So we are sinners in need of a savior, but it's bizarre that he came to do this for us. The inexplainable that God himself would orchestrate all of the events surrounding this Christmas day when Jesus arrived to coincide with his plan right to the finest detail. Here's just one for you. You can talk with your family and friends about this at Christmas time. This decree that was sent out to conduct a census, you read about it in Luke chapter 2, that all the Roman world would be taxed, that was actually put in place years before Jesus was even conceived. Caesar Augustus, when he came into power, many years in advance realized that what he needed to do was create a redistricting program of his empire. So in order to create this redistricting program, he wanted to gain more money for his empire, so he sat down with the leaders of the different nations that he oversaw, Syria being one of them, and said, we're going to redraw your borders in order to encompass more people. And so, by the way, leader of Syria, we're going to graft into you this nation called Judea so that when people are brought into a census, the ones that are from Bethlehem, the city of David, they're now going to belong to you. So when Joseph received the order 
to go to the place of his ancestry to register with his woman who was to be a spouse to him, Mary. It was something that had been planned years in advance, yet God spoke into the heart of Caesar to redistrict their empire in order to arrange things so that Jesus would be born that very night in Bethlehem just as had been foretold a thousand years in advance. That's our God carrying out the inexplicable. So we've got the illogical, we've got the bizarre, we've got the inexplicable. What about the absurd? The absurd is the invitation. If you've got your Bible with you, go to Luke chapter 2, and let's look at something that's very familiar to us, but hopefully through a new fresh set of eyes. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. It says this, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, and keeping watch over their flock by night. So it's a very dangerous thing to romanticize shepherds and shepherding. Those guys doing their shepping thing, sitting out on the hillside, and you're thinking, wow, how cool would that be? Nighttime, stars, listening to animals, bah. It's not so cool. As a matter of fact, this is the nastiest job they could give to people. This was considered the lowest of the low. On the social rung, They're at the very bottom. They never got invited to parties. These guys, in many cases, were criminals. They were definitely dishonest. Think in terms of the 1800s here in the United States when we had cattle drives and young men were hired to oversee the cattle drives. They always had to have a John Wayne there. The John Wayne kept them in control because typically they hired criminals, guys who couldn't get jobs doing other things, or the illiterate. The same thing with shepherding. These are guys who couldn't read, couldn't write. They couldn't make a success in other parts in business, so they were given this job, let alone the fact that their job kept them out in the field seven days a week, 24 hours a day, so they didn't go to church with all the good people. They didn't get to go to the synagogue. Matter of fact, their work made them to be considered ceremonially unclean by the priest. They didn't really want them coming. Now, we're told there's some shepherds, and they're out in these fields with their flocks. So flocks time, when they would take them out into the fields, sorry to mess with your Christmas story, but typically from April to November, right around there, from Passover to the late part of autumn, that's when they're grazing the sheep out in the field. So we've got this setting, shepherds living out in the field, very simple, very rustic, very primitive, but it's a quiet occupation. And in the stillness of the midnight hour, there's this profusion of a deep blue vault over their head. And then verse 9 happens. And an angel of the Lord explosively, the word there in Scripture says suddenly, every time you see an angel show up in the Bible, it's instantly So we've got this explosion of an angel standing before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. So we're told not only in the midnight sky when it's completely black out do they get this explosion of a being but then this being begins speaking to them and says, hey, don't be terribly frightened. Well, let's see why they're terribly frightened. Let's look, first of all, at this phrase, terribly frightened. Terribly, in the Greek language, is the word megas. Look at the definition for it. You've heard me use it before. Big, 
large, loud, mighty. But when it's associated with the word fear, it's exceedingly great fear. So that's terribly. That's megas. So megas is then attached to this word that you'll recognize, even if you don't speak Greek, the word phoibeo, because it's the root of the English word phobia. What are you afraid of? What are your fears? It's the word phoibeo, phobia. So we look at that to frighten, to be in awe exceedingly. So megas in awe. No wonder this being says to them, don't be afraid of me. Why? What did they see? Well, every single time I look at Scripture and I see an angel appear suddenly and explosively on the scene, I want to remember Daniel chapter 10 because Daniel had a face-to-face encounter with a heavenly being and he gave us a written description of what they look like. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but let me show you the description of this heavenly presence exploding on the scene. It comes from Daniel chapter 10 and verse 5. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl, and beryl is translucent. It's like glass, something that you can see through, but yet it's reflective. So luminescent. You can look through it, but it's highly reflected. So his body was also like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. A tumult is a thunder. So look in verse 9 at Daniel's response. But I heard the sound of his words. And as soon as I heard the sound of his words... I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. A very polite way of saying, I fainted. You get it? Okay. He did a face plant. No, matter of fact, if you go back and read verse 7, he literally says, my face turned ashen white and all the color left me. The blood drained from his face at the sight of one of these beings. No wonder they show up on the scene and say, wait, 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 don't be afraid. I'm here to bring you good news. Now, you won't see it on the screen, but I put it in your notes this morning. When they use the word good news, it's the word evangelizo. It's it's where we get the word evangelical. So we hear it in the news when they say evangelicals are added again. It, It literally means the people with the good news. Evangelizo. So he says, I'm here to bring you good news, and it's for all the people. Not just for you Jewish shepherds at the lowest caste of society. Not for all those who are dwelling down in Bethlehem. But I'm bringing it for all the people. Gentiles too. And if you don't know it, you're Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, okay? That's the word in Scripture. Verse 11, here's the invitation. The invitation that's being extended. Today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you you will find a baby. We'd be really good with pausing right there because he just said, there's a Savior that's going to be born for you. So we understand the baby part. But when he gets to wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger, it sounds absurd. A Savior of the world, let alone come as a baby, who's going to be in a cattle trough. 
When you think of the inn that Mary and Joseph went to, um, in, in best terms I can put this in the Middle East, they had what's known as a, a, a caravanansary, a, a place where caravans would go to. And so think of a, a two-story structure, like a two-story hotel. Uh, many times the first floor of the inn was reserved for the stall of the animals. Open stalls underneath the second floor. Second floor is reserved for the guest. And then it was always built around a courtyard, so it's built in a square. So you could, you could enter underneath the second floor and go into the courtyard, check in, and if all the rooms were full in the inn, then you could go to the courtyard and at least sleep by the fire after you've checked your animals in. So you put your goats, you put your sheep, your camels, your donkey, you check them into their stalls, and then you go inside the inn and crash for the night. But this inn is so full that Mary and Joseph have to go to the secondary barn, the cave, the place where the innkeeper kept his own animals. So they end up in this place where there's cattle troughs, a stall, and Jesus for his bed is going to be given straw. See why it sounds absurd to read it that way? The one whom the heavens cannot contain. If you've been here in the last few weeks, you know that we looked at the description of God as being the star breather. And you looked at the size of some of those stars. That one whom the heavens can't contain is going to be in a manger. See, the reason the angels say, we're going to give you a sign is because this is something that's not normal. This is extraordinary. The odds of finding another newborn baby in Bethlehem that night, probably pretty high. It's a city of about three to 5,000 people. But the odds of finding a newborn baby in straw in a manger... Okay, now I see why they needed a sign because they also called him the Savior of the world. But that's not the only reason for the sign. I'm going to show you why in verse 13. It says this, And suddenly, there's suddenly again, the angels associated with suddenly, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among, the men, among men with whom he is pleased. So suddenly again. Why at this instant, after the single angel makes this proclamation that I'm here to tell you that there's a Savior that's been born, why in that instant do all these other angels join him? Now understand, if you have your Bible, maybe you don't mind writing this down. When you see the phrase heavenly host in your Bible, it's literally talking about the warriors of heaven. It might be a strange thought for you to consider that, but heaven has an army. And the word heavenly host is talking about heaven's army. The warriors of heaven have shown up. Now, lest you think they need warriors in heaven, just think of Lucifer rebelling against God with a third of the angels of heaven who also fell with him being pitched out of heaven. Think of the description in Revelation that says there was war in heaven and Lucifer and his angels were not strong enough and Michael and his angels threw them down. See, these are the warriors of heaven that have shown up, and what are they doing? Heaven's army is bringing a peace message, and they're celebrating it. There's something remarkable in that statement then. So in order to let it be known that this event is highly regarded in heaven, Michael, at some point earlier in the day, or Gabriel, or one of the other archangels, apparently had a meeting with these warrior angels and said, hey guys, I got some transfer papers for you. You're normally around the throne of God, 
Myriads upon myriads of angels serving him according to what Scripture says. But today, we got something remarkable going on. The God of wonders is going to planet Earth. And so we're going to go there and announce it. So understand, angels in contrast to you and in contrast to me, they have no personal stake in this event. It doesn't affect their relationship with God the Father. They have no personal stake in it, yet they're the ones who are leading the celebration. Why? Well, understand a little bit of earth history. In 27 BC, the Pax Romana was instituted. Caesar Augustus put in this, uh, this document, he put in place this document that declared that there would be peace in the Roman Empire called the Pax Romana. Very simply, what it explains is that wherever the Roman Empire extended to, the Roman army would be there to keep peace. Well, there wasn't peace for people if you were part of the occupied country. You were just a subject to someone you didn't really want there. It was peace for the Roman citizens, but not for those who were subject to their control. So this Pax Romana is in control, and it failed and so we now have these angels showing up and saying, peace on earth, not just in the Roman Empire, but peace on earth. And so as a result, they're praising God. So in honor of this event, of all events, the heavenly host, the warriors, break into tunes, and they start praising God. And now this really needs clarification, so let me go a little deeper with you, especially on verse 13 and verse 14. Because what happens here is so abrupt and so passionate. We really want to understand what's being expressed here. What's going on for the angels in the emotion of this moment? Because peace is now available on planet Earth. If you know your Bible at all, you know that up till this point, humanity is fallen. Humanity stands in rebellion against God. We are a fallen race, subject to God's heavy, heavy wrath. And on our part, there's no possibility whatsoever of restoring ourselves back to God because of what Adam did. The first man creating the sin carried on through all generations of all mankind. And so there's no possibility of getting back to God. So first of all, we understand what they're doing here is praising God because God is formulating a mode to resolve this issue. He's going to bring the world to himself through the intervention of Jesus. So let's go one level deeper now. On his co-equal, on his co-eternal son, according to what Scripture calls the exact representation of his nature, He's going to lay all of our crime, all of our lies, all of our anger, all of our gossiping, all of our cheating, all of our adulteries, everything that falls under the label sin, he's going to lay it on this one who is the exact representation of who he is, where do I get that from? Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. That one 
is going to make a purification of sin. And when he has done that, according to verse 13, when he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is what you see the angels celebrating God about. Because therefore, peace is being brought down from heaven to earth among those whom God is well pleased with. That, by the way, is why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. So let's go one level deeper now. Let's go subterranean. When they say, on earth, peace among men, I want you to understand that angels are not robotic beings. As a matter of fact, we're told according to the Bible that angels are created higher than mankind. We are created a little lower than the angels, meaning they have superior intelligence. Their intellect surpasses ours. So what you're looking at here in Luke chapter 2 is not some rehearsal of a choir that got together in the back room behind God's temple in heaven one day and said, hey guys, everybody take this sheet music and practice this because we're going to show up in front of the shepherds and we're going to proclaim this. No, what you're looking at is intelligent beings making a proclamation that something is going on here that surpasses anything that's ever happened on planet earth. See, up till this point, there's been no trace of mercy to be seen anywhere in the universe. It's never existed. The highest intelligence in heaven, the created angels, have never before seen God's mercy and his grace to this extent. Yes, very clearly, they've seen God's grace to King David. They've seen God's mercy to Abraham, to a single individual. But they're declaring this for all of humanity, to the entire population. So what we're looking at here is this this celebration of the union of all of God's perfect intentions, which are seen through the incarnation and the eventual death of God's Son. That's why King David wrote in Psalms 85, when he's looking forward, he said, This is like a kiss. This this meeting of peace and righteousness. Look at the way he described this. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Isn't that a beautiful language? That's something we really lack in the English language. But in the Middle Eastern culture, they think in word pictures and they write that way. Because every sinner can have peace with God. So understand this moment. The angels glowing with reverberation, with these translucent bodies that are exploded into this midnight sky. They're about to sing a song that the angels have never sung before. This is a first-time proclamation. Glory to God in the highest, yet we get that. They've been singing that for generations. But this part, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. See, they'd seen no peace proclaimed. They'd seen no expression of goodwill towards the fallen angels. When that race of a higher created being fell, they fell permanently. And these are the angels who witness that. But now they see God's mercy and grace coming to mankind, and both are proclaimed to men on earth, peace and goodwill. So with wonder, they're radiating this glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill towards men with whom his favor rests. 
So I said a moment ago, angels had no personal stake in this because it didn't really change their relationship to God. But you do. You have a personal interest in what they're proclaiming because God has revealed his mercy to you. And it drips with their emotion. He's displaying his goodwill toward us, that he wants us back. It's why the angelic choir sings. So go with me to verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord made known to us. Check it out, literally. It's it's the word harao, but they're saying, let's check this thing out. Look with me at the definition for the word harao, to discern clearly. Let's see this thing. Let's go experience what they've just told us really happened. So look at their response, verse 16. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. So they found their way. And in the Greek language, it literally means to find after a search, a diligent searching. What I guarantee you this morning, you're about to step into parties and celebrations with people who are searching and they have no idea what they're searching for. There's a hole that is so big in them and they're hoping to find it at Yonkers. They're hoping to find that filling at Macy's. They're thinking what's around that tree, maybe that'll do it. They're hoping that maybe the family getting together, maybe that'll restore that sense of purpose again. If you know people like that, or maybe that's you today, you pay very close attention to this ending because you have a story to tell. This is where it ends in verse 20. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. So I want to ask you to raise your thought towards heaven right in this moment. We've been involved in singing with the kids. We've been watching people dance. Heard a lot of boisterous music. So let's turn our attention away from this auditorium and think of heaven at this very moment What's occurring there? Billions upon billions of redeemed souls at this very moment hear songs of praise completely surrounding them. It's enveloping them. Who do you know that's there? Your mom? Your grandpa? A friend from high school? Maybe the neighbor down the street that just died with cancer? Who do you know that's there in this very moment hearing these songs and the chorus is swelling louder and louder and louder and with each hour of every day that passes by, it gets louder and louder as the ascension of the saints are added to the choir because we know this every second and a half Someone just died. Someone just died. Someone just died. Someone just died. People are stepping into eternity every second and a half around planet Earth. 
Some are being added to that angelic choir. And at their bursting forth into the first entrance into heaven, they hear this roar of an, ov- of an ovation towards the king who reigns on the throne, and it never ends. But there was a moment before the first human voice was ever added to that angelic choir. There was a moment when there were only angels and no human entered into their presence. And then the first human entered in. And I know in your mind you're thinking it was Adam. But I will differ with you. And I don't think it was Eve. Or Cain or Abel. Not because I don't believe that they're in God's presence. But I believe the first one to be added to the angelic choir, the very first human, was a guy who was not on the A-list. He's not part of the who's who. Matter of fact, he was the outcast of society. The guy who was next to Jesus on the cross, who was the first believer in Jesus to die in Jesus. The thief on the cross turned to him and said, Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And that is all it took for the king of kings to turn to him and say, I tell you the truth, this day you will enter with me into paradiso. Up until that point, everyone who had died, who were believers in God and followers of God, entered into the place of what the Bible calls the bosom of Abraham. In other words, at Abraham's side, a place of rest. But no one could enter into the presence of God, into heaven, until the justification that was accomplished through Jesus on the cross had been completed. And we understand that this thief on the cross was one of those. So you can argue with me about it. But I know for a fact that this one was the first one to die in Jesus. And Jesus invited him into the kingdom, even though he was a total screw-up his entire life. And it took him until the end of his life to get it right. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So what can all of the assembly say when all the redeemed of the Lord with the holy angels gathered together in one universal voice and we stand next to that thief on the cross and your grandma and your grandpa and your aunts and your uncles and we stand with the angels, we're going to all say the same thing together. Worthy is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world to receive power and glory and honor and blessing and riches and strength. Why? Because they got the invitation to the party. And they were willing to respond to it. And they accepted it. So let me give you a new view as we end this on 2 Corinthians. I shared it with you in the very beginning. I'm going to close with it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he sat on a throne in splendor, in a golden mansion, with untold millions of angels surrounding him, for your sake, 
came to the earth. He had a mom who was a teenager. He had cows to greet him. And the lowest of the lowest of society came to visit him. He became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you have a reason to celebrate this Christmas season? Absolutely in Christ. So it's utterly, absolutely absurd that God would extend this invitation to us, but it is wonderfully absurd that he would willingly invite us to the party because the truth of it is, in spite of all our flaws and weaknesses, he still loves us. None of us here is a who's who. None of us is on the A-list. And I promise you, this auditorium could be filled with movie stars from Hollywood. All the A-listers. It could be filled with those who are the captains of industry, the wealthiest of the wealthy of our world. And none of them would be on the A-list either. None of them would qualify for the who's who. Because in contrast to the God of wonders, we all are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. So... Here's the truth. Every one of us is a who's who, according to God, when you look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him. See, that makes you a who. That makes you a somebody. You're the who's who in God's eyes if you believe in his son, because as a result of believing in his son, you will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the truth of Scripture. So I've given you in your notes this morning these three points that I'm challenging you on as you step into Christmas. And these three points you'll see pop up on the screen, but there's explanation in your notes. Here they are. Number one, if you are not a person who has yet put your faith in Christ, if you're not there as a believer in Jesus, I challenge you to do what the shepherds did. The shepherds investigated. They probed the truth of what they've heard. They didn't leave it lay aside. Can you imagine if the angels showed up and the shepherds heard this invitation and said, yeah, you know, I got this job I'm doing with the shepherd, with the sheep here. I I really can't get away right now. Thanks, but I got to go to Yonkers. Um, You know, I got a dinner meeting at Panera. We're good. Thanks, though. But this is what they did. They responded. They're looking into the deep mysteries of God with all the humility that it requires. Number two is for you if you are a believer in Jesus this morning. If you're convinced, communicate the truth carefully to others. Know the story and share Share it. You have so much more instruction than what the shepherds had, so much clearer truth in God's word. Share it. They had very limited information, but it didn't stop them. They just told what they knew. Number three is for everybody. Make this the foundation of your celebration, of your day, in the midst of all your earthly business. See, the shepherds, it says that they returned glorifying God. They returned to what? They went back to shepping. They went back to what they knew to do. They didn't quit their jobs. They went back to their job, but in the midst of it, They're praising God, telling everybody what they knew. So, New Hope, I charge you, in the name of the Most High God, begin this day. Make this a season of celebration. 
of huge joy in anticipation of what's waiting for you in heaven and what you're experiencing here on earth. Will you rise to the occasion? Will you rise to welcome your Savior? Because his royal majesty, King Jesus, has personally invited you to the party. You've got the invitation of all invitations. And word on the street is, there's a pretty big party that's gonna happen. The invitations have already been sent out. Do you have your RSVP in yet? Let's pray. God, you've given us very clear truth this morning, and it only happens through the power of your Holy Spirit, so we give praise and glory to you. For those who have been in these three services, God, including all of us in this auditorium right now, and those who will be coming to the next two services on Christmas Eve, God, I unashamedly ask that for any individual who does not yet stand in relationship to you, that you would use the power and the authority of your word to speak deeply into their heart. God, that you would use these services to draw men and women and students and children to yourself. You think so much of us that you sent your son to die for us. God, thank you for the new beginning that we know in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And thank you for the party that's waiting for us. God, send us out with your blessing. Thank you for the privilege of being here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.